Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. And uh, appreciate sharing this uh, opportunity this morning with Phil from Emmaus Bible College. I don't know where you went, Phil, but my, uh, my oldest daughter went to Emmaus and she had a really great year there. It was really good for my daughter, Elizabeth. Today we have a, a very serious topic. It's the topic of repentance. And this morning I'm going to be talking about what the Bible says about repentance. This evening I'm going to be talking about how you can use this teaching and the emphasis on repentance in the sharing of the gospel. I'm going to share a video clip, uh, an actual on-the-street interview with an unsaved person named Carlos, where I'll be sharing the gospel with him and explaining to him the meaning of repentance. The results are very, um, I think, not surprising, but um, provides a lot of insight. The Lord just gave us a, a really a perfect person to talk to. So I hope you can join us tonight, uh, this morning, what the Bible teaches about repentance. Tonight, how you can use this to help people come to Christ. We're going to have a video clip to start. I'm sure by the title of this video that you can tell what it's about. And I'm very nervous, excited, and scared for this huge step in my life. I've thought and prayed long and hard about what would be the best way to go about this and seeing how videos have been such a positive form of communication for me in the past, I thought that this would be the best way. I'm a Christian, and I'm gay. <laughs> Just hearing those words and knowing that all of you are going to hear it is so liberating. I know that many of you already knew this, assumed this, or maybe it actually is breaking news to you. But for my entire life, I have struggled to come to terms with who I am and who God made me to be. It took me a really long time and many, many years of purposeful neglect and denial to get to the place where I am today and to really desire to dig into the theology regarding this issue. Theology that I had never even questioned growing up, whether it was true or whether it was false or whether the Bible really condemned homosexuality. College student studying music at a Christian college. I think he's a very sincere young man. And uh, I think what you're witnessing there is something we're going to see a lot more of today because what's happening across the world, is that homosexuality and other unbiblical life forms are being accommodated within the Christian faith. And one of the reasons, not the only reasons, but one of the reasons is we have no longer preach repentance as part of the gospel. And so I'd like to look today at uh, Luke chapter 18 and see what the Lord Jesus taught about this topic and see if we can't understand not only what the Bible teaches about repentance... But we're also going to be looking at some of the objections 
that some of our uh, evangelical theologians are bringing forth to tell us why this is not part of the gospel. Uh, some of you may find this surprising, some of you won't. This is a controversial topic. Is repentance part of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And he also told this parable to certain ones. I'm in a little bit of control problem here. He also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Well, you know his primary audience was the Pharisees. I just can't share this passage with you without telling you just a quick personal story. I was raised in Roman Catholicism. My parents are very devout Catholics. My mother was a Catholic saint. It's because she had eight children. Any Catholic mother from Ireland who has eight children is automatically given sainthood. And I, became, I was not a saint. I came to Christ when I was 23, and God gave me a great burden for my family. I remember after being a Christian a year or two, being in the kitchen with my mother trying to explain to her that she was a sinner who needed to be saved. That didn't go over so well. I was kind of like the, you know, the black sheep in the family, and my mother was saint, mom, and uh, I'm explaining to her she's a sinner and, and that, that, that we're all sinners. Conversation went something like this. Well, mom, you've lied, haven't you? She said, well, what would I lie about? Well, have you ever stole anything? Stole anything? Of course not. Well, have you ever hated anyone? No. And it went on like that. And then, then I crossed a line. You never cross this line with your mother. I said, well, have you ever had a lustful thought? She got really angry with me. Um, you know, your generation, all you talk about is sex. What's wrong with you people, you know? And, and I could see I'd gone too far. So as I was leaving that day, I was married and... and living about an hour from there where she lived, uh, I gave her a little slip of paper, and I just wrote down a reference. And I said, Mom, would you take a look at this uh, when you get a chance? It's about two weeks before I returned to my parents' home. When I came to the door, my youngest sister answered the door, and she said, you really got Mom mad this time. I go, this time? I mean, it's, I, I can't even I, What did I do? And uh, she said, you called her a Pharisee. I didn't call her Pharisee, and when I came up the stairs to the living room, she was waiting for me, and she's had a head of steam on. This is two, I didn't even know what happened. It's two weeks later, and she said something. I don't even remember what she said. She was so angry. She stormed out of the room, and my daughter said, you called her a Pharisee. You wrote her on a piece of paper, and you gave it to her, I, I, and then it came back. What happened? I'd given her a reference to Luke chapter 18, verses uh, 9 through 14 were the verses we're going to be looking at. And uh, I love these verses because my mother got saved about six years later. Sometimes people got to get mad before they get saved. And she really got mad. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Let me get it up here for you. Uh, one a Pharisee and another a tax gatherer. And here's a picture of them in all their glory. This is by a, 
a German uh, artist from the uh, 19th century, and I really like it because he just captures what these two fellows were really like. And you can see the Pharisee on the right. He's a really grand fellow, isn't he? And you can see the tax gatherer on the left. Two very different men. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You can, can you see how my mother reading this, you know, on this little piece of paper, a reference turning in her Bible and, and, and trying to say, now why on earth is my son giving me this to read? I thank God I'm not like other people. And I'd have to say it was true in her case. She was not like other people. She was one of the most selfless people I knew. You know, I, I saw a sign in a store once, a, a pet store. It said, this kind of thing you can hang on your wall. It was in the shape of a bone. It said, if getting into heaven is based on being good, my dog will go to heaven and I'll go to hell. And that's true. When you, you just see the goodness of a heart of a little puppy. Well, if it was based on merit, I will grant it, my mother deserves to go to heaven. Okay, If God's going to judge on the curve, there are some incredibly wonderful, nice people on this earth who just seem to have sweethearts. They really do. I'm not saying they're sinless, but I'm saying compared to the rest of the scoundrels, um, there are people that are better than other people. She was one of them. In her mind, she was not like other people. She certainly wasn't a swindler, never stole anything or unjust. Certainly not an adulterer, lustful person. Certainly not, he's saying, not like this guy behind me. Can you see that? That's how we do it. We com- we, we, God judges on the curve, and we're all not, you know, Adolf Hitler, Edie Amin, and a bunch of other scoundrels. We're, we're, I'll, I like to draw a bell curve and ask people, good, bad, put yourself on there. Do you know where they always put themselves? Everybody. Just a little bit on the good side of average. Maybe, maybe a little bit more than just a little bit. Everybody thinks they're better than average. They do the same thing on driving. You know, on U.S. driving surveys, everybody thinks they're better than the average driver. Well, half of us are deluded because half of us are not better. Isn't that right? Just by definition. And if God judges on the curve, yeah, there's some people that are better than others. And maybe compared to the tax gatherer, maybe the Pharisee was better but the fact of the matter is, God doesn't judge on the curve. He judges us against his own perfect righteousness, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Well, you can see him there, and he's got a good girth to him, and his nose a little bit up in the air, a big sack of change on his belt and he's dropping one little coin into the treasury and uh, he's very proud of himself. There's a lot of proud people that are going to hell. Very unfortunate. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, it's interesting in the Catholic Mass there's a, a penitential rite one of the things there, you, you beat your breast. In, in Latin, we used to say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, my, my fault, my fault, my great fault. The problem is, it's just a ritual. 
you don't even think about what you're doing at that part of the Mass. You just do that. We were taught from the time we were kids to say the act of contrition. Oh, my God, I'm hardly sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins because of the just punishment. And it goes on. But if you ask a Catholic, if you ask me, well, what does it mean, an act of contrition? I don't know. It's not a word we normally use. Well, what do the words mean? Well, you can rattle that off one moment in your mind, justify yourself as a good person the next moment. It means a, an act of brokenness. This... This guy was broken. He was standing some distance away. He wouldn't even go all the way forward where he could within the temple and was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, ashamed to look God uh, directly, beating his breast, calling out for mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Why is Jesus telling us this? Because this is the kind of person... That God saves. If, if you look at these two fellows, they're very different. We might put them into two categories. The, the category of the Pharisees and the tat- category of the tax gatherers. I know we have a tax gatherer here with all due respect. Um, but which category are you in? Have you, have you ever at a point in your life said what the tax gatherer said? Or is your attitude, yeah, I'm, look, look at all the Floridians that are in bed today or watching football. You know, football, I guess, is over. They're on the next sport. I guess they're on the basketball. Whatever. At least I'm in church. Or is your attitude, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. You're one or the other. Can you think of a time in your life where you genuinely humbled yourself before God and, and just came to a, a, a deep sense of your own wickedness or overcome just with remorse before the things you've done to people and towards God? You know, we put so much emphasis. Can you remember the time you trusted Christ, that you believed in his name? Well, that's good. We're going to get to that. But can you remember a prior time where you repented? Of your sins. You say, well, repentance isn't necessary, is it? Well, let's see what it says. I think this is a little bit too unresponsive. I'm just going to signal you back there to change it, okay? You can change this next one. I tell you this. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, speaking of the tax gatherer, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. If you're not like that tax gatherer, there hasn't been a time in your life where you humbled yourself before God. You're not justified. God will not justify the proud, arrogant, self-righteous person. But I believed in Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? Believed in him for what? I have a friend. You know, you always hear people say, well, if you're going to die, if you're going to have a tragic death, one of the best ways to go is to drown. She says, you know, I almost drowned. It was not the best way to go. It was, it was horrific. Somebody reached in the pool and pulled her out at the last second. See, you, you can't have a, a savior or a deliverer or a rescuer unless you're almost lost. A lot of people... 
have a Savior, but they were never lost. They believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but they don't really believe they ever did anything seriously wrong. I like to ask people in evangelism, I ask them the question, well, are you ashamed of anything you've ever done? Well, not really. Have you ever done anything that like God could actually send you to hell for? Well, I don't think so. Well, how do you hope to get in heaven? Well, Jesus died for my sins. Why? I mean, if they're just little piddly things, why do you die on your cross for your sins? If you're not a, if you're not lost, you can't be what? You can't be saved. A lot of people in America, they've been saved, but they were never lost. How is that possible? Well, part of the problem is us and our presentation of the gospel. How did Connor get to be in the confused state that he's in? He's in Bible school and he's, he's, coming out online to his parents and everyone else as a gay Christian. See, how do you get there? Now, I don't know the whole story, but I think probably what's happened is the poor guy has been struggling with sin that he doesn't have power over, and he's got to decide one or two things. Am I going to go on with the Christian life and hold to my profession of faith in Christ? And if so, I've got to reconcile or rationalize in my mind the inconsistency that's there then I'm attracted to men and maybe sexually active. And so there's a whole new theology developing about how whether you're heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or whatever, it's not a moral issue. It's just finding out how God made you and then living that out. The other alternative for him, as he understands, is just give up on the Christian faith. Just, just go his way. But he doesn't want to do that, so... He's bought into this gay Christian theology. Has anybody explained to him the importance of repentance and what it means? That being a Christian is not just believe in Jesus, it's to repent and believe in Jesus. Let's go on to the next slide. I want to go through some objections really quickly with you for the sake of time, but... I want to go through these objections because this is what I'm being told. And I've been told this by Bible teachers, missionaries, missionaries in the CMML handbook, theologians. I was even told it this week, a couple of these things by people here in the assemblies in Florida. So I'm not making this up, okay? Um, and I don't have time to fully present the whole thing. I just want to expose you to some of the thinking here so you can think it through and ask yourself, is repentance part of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ or not? One missionary told me this, the gospel is good news, the preaching of sin and repentance is bad news. Repentance is not part of the gospel. Well, yes, if you take the word gospel, it literally means to tell that which is good. And nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. But, but, but you can't explain the theology of salvation by the etymology of one word. The question we have to ask, is the preaching of the repentance biblical? And I would propose to you, the gospel doesn't make any sense if we don't preach repentance. I mean, if you're feeling just great, you went for a jog this morning, you got up really early, you had a, you know, a keto diet, and you're eating, you know, just feeling just great, and, and you got your annual checkup coming, and you go in and see the doctor, and he pokes around, he listens to a few things, he runs a couple tests, he has to come back a week later. He says, friend, you, you need a heart transplant. Now, if you have any sense, you'll run for your life 
That guy's crazy. What do you mean I need a heart transplant? I feel great. Well, he's going to have to explain to you why though you feel great, you're dying. Your heart is diseased. He's, you're going to want to see proof, aren't you? You're not just going to sign that, well, okay, if you say my heart needs to go out, get me a transplant. No. But when you see all the results and you see what he sees and you get a second and a third opinion and you maybe you start then seeing some symptoms and nothing else because he's been telling you this stuff, well, maybe then you're willing to sign on the dotted line and, and, and go under the knife. It's that important in the preaching of the gospel. This is a key that I think is important in understanding the gospel. First came John the Baptist. Then came the Lord Jesus. John 1, 6, 7 says, There came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. How do you believe through another person? That all might... Well, the fact that, that all might believe through him means that all needed to hear his message, didn't it? What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to prepare the hearts of Israel for the reception of the Messiah. How did he do that? By preaching repentance. By calling upon them to confess their sins and be baptized into the Jordan. Jews, sons of Abraham, being told that they act to act, had to act like proselytes, Gentile proselytes. They had to be baptized and proclaim publicly that they weren't right with God. And this is how he prepared them for the coming of the Messiah. It's the same today. If you want to prepare people for the reception of the gospel, you have to preach repentance just like John. It's essential I made a proposal to one of your elders earlier in this week. I, I don't think he took me up on it. I said, if Sunday morning you can bring 100 repentant sinners to the meeting, I'll lead 100 people to Christ. Why? It's easy once they repent. They're all ears. Once you're drowning, I mean, when you throw out the lifesavers, everybody's grabbing on, aren't they? But, but you go out to the beach and start throwing out life preservers to the surfers out there and everybody else, but they look at you like you're crazy. Like, leave me alone. Just find the way I am. Alternatively, if you bring me a hundred unrepentant people, I will preach to them for hours and hours, and I'll guarantee you not one of them will get saved. It's that essential to the proclamation of the gospel. We go to the next slide, please. Matthew 3, 1 through 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 14 through 15. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Who is it that said repent and believe the gospel? It's Jesus. That's what John preached. That's what Jesus preached. Is that what we preach? We have the next slide. Objection number two. Repentance isn't mentioned in the gospel of John. person just told me that this week. Somebody who's got uh, theological training and a degree in theology. Well, wait a second. Let, let's assume that this is even right. Let's, let's assume that it, it's even true. It's not, but let's assume that it is. So are you saying that if it's in Matthew, 
Mark, and Luke, but not in John, then it's not part of the gospel? Is, is that what we believe as Christians? Like it has to be in all four gospel before, gospels before we believe it? I mean, how dare anybody even say this? Is it in the Bible? That's the, that's, is in the Word of God? Not, it's not even mentioned in the Gospel of John. Why? Well, the logic goes like this. The Gospel of John is the evangelical gospel. And if it's not in John, well, then it's not part of the evangelical gospel. Something like that. Well, it's true that the, the word, the Greek word for repentance is not in the Gospel of John, but is the concept in the Gospel of John? Wouldn't that be more important than he actually used the word or not? Uh, you're studying John right now. Uh, going through it as a church, I would encourage you as you go through every passage, just ask yourself, does this have anything to do with repentance? I mean, John the Baptist is in the Gospel of John. Didn't he have something to do with repentance? I mean, that, all, that was his message. The woman at the well, why did Jesus say to the woman at the well, go and call your husband? What has her husband got to do with it? She goes, well, I don't have a husband. She said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You're on the sixth. Why is he bringing, that's kind of like, that's kind of rude. Unless it's, there's a reason for that, isn't there? He, he's pointing out to her, like, you've got a sin problem, lady. And she took it to heart. Maybe get the next slide. John seven seventeen. Do you see any repentance here? Jesus made this promise. This is getting pretty close to the end in John 7. I think this is a Feast of Booths. This is about six months before he died. If any man is willing to do his will, the Father's will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. This is an amazing verse. First of all, a beautiful definition of repentance. If any man is willing to do God's will... He shall know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. There's a promise there and a definition. You could summarize it. If you repent, you'll figure the rest out just fine. There's a promise that if you're willing to do God's will, God will help you to understand what Jesus taught, who he is, and what it's all about. How many times have we heard this in somebody's testimony? You know, I, my wife left me. My, I hurt my kids. My life was just a total wreck. I, I, I just broke down. I got down on my knees and I said, God, if you're there and you'll show yourself to me, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in John seven seventeen. If any man's willing to do God's will, he shall know the teaching. I'm saying this. If you find a repentant person, in other words, they're willing to do God's will, God will take care of the rest. I have shared the gospel with truly repentant people. Uh, a young college student named Margaret, who was Chinese, got kicked out of a university for cheating, saw her whole life just in shambles. And a young girl who was working with international students brought her to our Bible study. And, you know, this young woman, Margaret, was so broken about her sin, so disgraced about cheating in college, the shame she brought to her family. I mean, as fast as I could share a verse from the Bible about the cross and what Christ did, she had it. I'd share a verse. I'd ask her a question. She had it. We'd go on to the next one, the next one, the next one. She got saved. Because I'm a brilliant evangelist? Not at all. She was, she was the ground that was fertile and ready for the seed. And the seed took hold, and she's going on for the Lord today, many years later. 
So if, if we believe this, well, really what we have to do in evangelism, we have to find people that are willing to do God's will. And if they're not willing to do God's will, we have to point out to them what God's will is and that they're not doing it, and God's calling them to, to turn from that. It's just that simple. Objection number three, you're adding to the gospel. Well, um, I'm going to be adding to the gospel if this is what Jesus preached. I mean, who's best qualified to teach the way of salvation? Certainly not me. But let's let's see who is. We're going to go to Acts chapter 26, verses 12 to 13 for a second. We're going to go. We're going to go to evangelism school. Okay, the best evangelism school ever is in Acts chapter 26. The teacher is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. The student is going to be the greatest evangelist of all times, the Apostle Paul. And taking class notes, the Spirit of God, inspired scripture. Acts 26, 12 through 13, Paul says, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. If we could get the next slide. And when we had... Fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Notice what he's being told by the Lord Jesus to do in his evangelistic ministry. Your job is to, to open their eyes to what? that they're sinners, that they're living in darkness. Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. That's repentance. That's that U-turn you've heard about. You've been living in darkness. You go, I didn't even realize it was that dark. And then you see the light over here, and you go towards the light. You turn from the darkness. You turn to the light, you turn from the dominion or the rule of Satan to the rule of God. God, I'm willing to do your will. That doesn't say you clean up your life, you amend for your sins, you reform, you start going to church, you keep the Ten Commandments. No, you turn an act of your will. The light has come into the world. But men don't turn because why? Because they love the darkness. They love the darkness because their deeds are evil. I mean, escaped convicts fleeing their guards in the dark of night, running through the forest. They see a flashlight flickering and dogs barking. Which direction do they go? They go away from the light. When you're lost in the forest and you hear the see a flickering lights and dogs barking, you go toward the light because you want to be found. I mean... Who doesn't want to go to heaven? It's just a free gift. 
and there's no strings attached and you can continue on living the way you're living, why not? Why wouldn't everybody want to go to heaven? But to turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God, that means there's going to be changes in your life. And we have to be careful how we share this because people just, they get this concept. So you're telling me I got to clean up my life. And not only am I not telling you that, but you can't clean up your life. Only God can clean up your life. But I want to tell you, if you put your faith in Christ, he's going to come into your life and things are going to change. Do we have a responsibility to tell people that? Or do we just kind of like pray the prayer to see what happens? You know, I mean, is, is that the way God works? It's kind of like bait and switch, you know, just close the deal and, and then we'll, we'll tell you what you got yourself into afterwards. That's not how God operates. God, God wants you to know what this is about. I mean, it's, it's radical what happens when you get saved. The spirit of God comes into your life and God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, you're going to have like a hypersensitivity to the sin in your life. You know who the most miserable person on earth is? It's not the unsaved. Some of them are having a great time. The most miserable person on earth is the Christian who's not walking with the Lord, who's walking in sin. Because they're not enjoying the blessings of the Lord. They're not enjoying, they can't enjoy the blessings of sin. Don't we have a responsibility kind of like before? Before you sign on the dotted line, before you say, you know, I receive you as my Savior, come into my life, make me the person you want me to be, go, would you like to know what that's going to mean? Like, do we have, things are going to be radically different. You know what I often say when I'm sharing the gospel with people? I say I've got a Christian friend, you know, I say, well, you know, so-and-so, you want a life like that? Well, not really, you know. I like to have my Sunday mornings to myself and I'm living with my girlfriend and I'm doing drugs and I'm cheating for my boss. And No, they, they seem like they have a really boring life. Or you say, you know, do you want to be like this Christian? Because God's going to come in your life. You're not going to be exactly that person, but you're going to be like that person. Go, yeah, that's what I want. They've got a joy. They've got something I want. That's being honest with people. Notice they've got to turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God for the purpose that they might receive forgiveness. By implication, if they don't turn, they can't receive it. Who's saying this? This is Jesus. Who's he saying it to? To Paul. Who's, who's recorded this? The Holy Spirit of God. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should do what? Repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. I want to tell you, I'm not exactly sure what that last phrase means. I'm not sure I have the guts to tell people before you receive Christ, repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance and then we'll talk some more. That's what Jesus did. The young rich ruler, you know, what might I do to have eternal life? Well, he knew he was, his life was filled with greed and possessions. Go sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come back and we can talk some more. His countenance dropped. See the next slide. Objection number four. Repentance is a change of mind about who Jesus is. It has nothing to do with sin. So it's just a change of mind about who Jesus is. So when John was preaching repentance, they didn't even know who Jesus, they didn't even heard of Jesus. He hadn't even met Jesus at the beginning, at least didn't realize he was the Messiah, his cousin. So what were they going to change their mind about Jesus? It's all about their sins. 
wasn't it? Let's look at the next slide. Jesus said this, The men of Nineveh shall stand up to this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying you got to do what the Ninevites did. Did they change their mind about Jesus? They never heard of Jesus. They changed their mind about their sin. Repentance is about sin. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, certainly coming to salvation is changing your mind about Jesus and God and yourself and your sin. So, so there's a lot of things you got to change your mind about. Please, let's not leave sin out of it. Repentance is first, a change of mind about who I am, a sinner. It's a decision to turn from sin to God. Objection number five. The preaching of repentance was only for the Jews. I've been told this. It's a Jewish thing. That's why it's in the the Gospels. They're very Jewish. Well, it's not. Acts 17.30, Paul says this. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should Repent. Acts 20, 21, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We emphasize that second part wonderfully. We ask the kids, have you believed in Jesus? When was the last time you asked a kid, have you repented toward God? Have you ever done that? Have you repented toward God? Well, that's that's what Paul preached. I think this is beautiful because it, it kind of brings out the nature of this. You, you begin with repentance towards God in a general sense, your maker and your creator. And then in a specific sense, you come to understand what the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did for you on the cross, and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you can't go to the Father directly. You have to go through the Son. He's the mediator between God and men. Have we, have we cut the gospel in half and le- left out the first part? And, and on what authority do we do that? Well, we just, want, we just want to get to the good part. Well, problem is you can't get to the good part successfully unless you, you talk about the first part. You say, well, I've seen people come to Christ and they've gone, well, yes. Sometimes people get saved despite our bad evangelism and our confusion because there's something just in the human mind when you start talking about the cross that that it brings on the concept of guilt and repentance. It's a natural response. But if you want to be an effective evangelist, you want to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit and you want to be taking them through the logical steps leading to salvation, not leaving all kinds of things out. People even leave out who Jesus is. Just believe in Jesus assuming they understand he's the son of God. That was maybe true 50 years ago. Most Americans had kind of religious upbringing. They knew something about that Jesus is the son of God. But you can't even assume that today. People totally biblically illiterate. Let's look at the next slide. Objection number six. The battle cry of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. Well, first of all, I, I've never found any of the reformers who said sola fide, faith alone. Um, maybe somebody who's a better historian than I can, can find that. But even if they had, um, what would they have meant by that? What they would have meant by it in the context of the Reformation, it, it, it would have been a, a statement of objection to the Roman Catholic teaching that salvation is through merited good 
good works which merits eternal life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that context, we could say no, it's through faith alone. We have the same thing in the book of Galatians where after Paul had planted the churches of Galatia and, and, and told them of salvation through Jesus, confused or even false teachers came into the churches telling them, well, it's good you were justified by faith in Jesus, but to maintain that justification, you must keep the law of Moses and be circumcised and keep the Sabbath. It, it was a gospel of faith plus works for salvation. In that context, yes, salvation is by faith alone. It's not faith plus works. But none of the reformers would have said it's apart from repentance. Let's go on to the next slide. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It's interesting, in the Catholic Bible, it says, I tell you, no, but unless you do penance, you will likewise perish. That's a terrible distortion of the word of God. Slide. Objection number seven, only the elect can repent. Well, our friends in Reformed Calvinistic theology believe this because the order of salvation as they understand it is, first God gives you faith. Excuse me. First God quickens you. You're born again. Then he gives you faith. Then he gives you repentance. Repentance is a post-salvation work. Why? Because their concept of total depravity is that you're like a cadaver that cannot respond to God. So you can neither believe nor repent. You first must be quickened or born again. And once you come alive... Then, then you can believe because God gives you faith and then you can repent. Well, I want to tell you in the Bible, it's the opposite order. You repent, you believe, and you're born again. With all due respects to John Calvin. Next slide, please. Second Peter 3 9. This is what the Lord says to those who would say that only the elect can repent. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Our Reformed brothers like to stress the sovereignty of God. Well, let's, let's respect the sovereignty of God. This is the expressed will of God that all men repent. He has sent the Holy Spirit out in the world to convict all men of sin, judgment, and righteousness that they all might repent with the help of the Holy Spirit. Why don't they all get saved? Because they won't repent. They're not willing to have this man reign over them. They love their sin. They love the darkness. And it's, it's our calling to come and help them to see they're in darkness and, and to call them out of that darkness. I hope you can come tonight. I'm going to show you a live video of how this works. Objection number eight, the preaching of repentance is lordship salvation. I don't know how many of you heard this one. You're telling people they've got to make God lord of their life, and if he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. So you're setting the bar incomprehensibly high. No one can be saved if you have to repent. Well, how many married couples do we have here? Any married people? Can you raise your hand high? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Okay. Keep your hands high. I didn't say you could lower your hand. Keep your hand high if you understand perfectly what it means to be a Christian husband or wife and are living that. Now, you notice, they have, you guys know who are, if you're married or not, I hope you know that. <laughs> but you also know that it's a lifelong process, isn't it, of, of, of entering into fully what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church and for wives to submit their 
to their husbands as to the Lord. That's a lifelong process. But yet you can give me the day, the moment, the place where you got married. You made that decision. And repentance is a decision. God, I'm willing for you to to come into my life and change me. And I want to obey you. I want to please you if you'll give me the ability. And then you come to know Christ. You believe in him and you're saved. And yes, it's a process entering into the lordship of God. But let's not not turn this into some kind of a play on words and and, and turn repentance into something of, of moral perfection. It's a turning. Okay, it's not a cleaning up of your life and a becoming perfect like God is perfect. Uh, they say we're adding to the gospel. Well, what gospel are you talking about? I'm talking about Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, is that lordship salvation? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay, well, Paul, what if I just believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead? Am I still saved? That's how we act as Americans. Well, can we reduce this down to the fewest number of words and still be saved? Well, you can't. You have to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. Righteousness is the justification, the declaration of God that you're righteous in his sight. And with the mouth he confesses. Confesses what? Jesus is Lord. Resulting in what? Salvation. It's not an optional part. Objection number nine, this is the last one. Requiring sinners to repent will result in works righteousness. Really? I, I've been following the, the whole thing going on in Washington, D.C. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? I heard a journalist read the guilty plea, of the court transcript of Michael Cohen going before a federal judge and 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 pleading guilty to a a number of felonies. And when something like this, you can get it online and read it. It's very fascinating. The judge says something like this. First of all, the judge, maybe one of the lawyers, read out the whole uh, guilty plea, all the crimes that he said he did. Then the judge said something like this. Mr. Cohen, who's now standing before the judge. Did you commit these crimes? Yes, Your Honor. You're pleading guilty. Yes, Your Honor. Do you understand the significance of what you're saying? Yes, Your Honor. He's a lawyer. should. Do you realize these are felonies? Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Cohen, are you under any kind of medication right now? No, Your Honor. Have you ever been in a mental institute? No, Your Honor. Have you ever suffered from mental illness? No, Your Honor. Do you understand what you're doing? Yes, Your Honor. Have you discussed this with your lawyers? Yes, Your Honor. It went on like this. I must ask him 30 questions. Why? Because this is really serious. He's confessing that he's guilty. And at the end of it, did the judge say, well, since you confess you're guilty, I declare you innocent and you can go home. No. So you're guilty. We're going to move on to sentencing. Now you're going to get punished for what you did. There's nothing righteous about saying I'm guilty. It's self-condemnatory. How do we turn... This concept, the requiring sinners to repent, will result in works righteousness. Really, a person who repents for the first time in their life understands that they're not righteous. Isn't it kind of like the opposite of what you're saying? Let's go on to the next slide. What did Jesus, this parable we were looking at, he told this parable to whom? 
to those who trust in themselves, like the Pharisees, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He's saying, you need to become like the tax gatherer because you're already self-righteous. Let's go to the next slide. Which one are you? I tell you, if we don't start preaching repentance, we're going to have churches filled of confused young men like Connor. And we're going to have blood on our hands because that poor guy, somebody needs to sit him down and explain to him the gospel. Because he went to Bible school believing in Jesus, but I'm almost certain he never repented and believed in Jesus. Next video. What happens when a person repents and believes? Jesus said this, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We're not calling a truce with the sin in our life because we're overcomers. God has called us to a life of sanctification and freedom from sin. You're never going to see that if people aren't truly saved. And they're not going to be truly saved if we don't preach repentance and faith in Jesus. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. If you're on that list, if that's the practice of your life, don't let anybody deceive you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are we being told? Well, if you're a homosexual, that's, that's who you are. Well, you know what? That's what the Corinthians were. They were homosexuals, and they were effeminate thieves and adulterers and so on. And so were some of us. This is what salvation is. And such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. I just want to close with a a video clip from a lesbian woman who's been saved. Maybe we could dim the lights because she says it better than I could possibly say it. Because we're dealing with today, things have gotten to the point with regards to homosexuality in America, that if you say homosexuality is a sin, people assume you're just a bigot, just like a racist. It, it's Things have gotten that confusing. But how are we going to see these people saved? It's not just from homosexuality, but from all sins, unless we call them to repentance. My name is Tierra Moore, and I'm from the east side of Detroit. I was born and raised on that side of town, and I went to a Catholic school. Growing up, it seemed like I was just a regular child, but in kindergarten, I knew something was different about me. I knew something was strange about me. I began to like what I saw. I started liking the same sex. And so I remember in kindergarten, I used to tell my childhood friend that I was a boy. I used to tell her that my parents didn't know it because I had a crush on her. And even being that young, I knew it was wrong because my parents were taking me to church. But still, I liked what I liked. And so today I can understand how people could think that they were born that way because in kindergarten, you're so young. And a lot of people believe that when you're that young, You don't deal with demons. You don't have thoughts like that because when you're youthful and when you're a little child, you're considered pure. 
But the reality is, is that we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And so out of the womb, I was a sinner. And so as I began to get older, going to high school, I actually began to act on it. But before I began to act on it, I had relationships over the phone. So it went from internet to now telephone, dating guys as a cover-up. I never really were into them, never really liked them, was barely attracted to them. It was something I just did not like. I did not like men at all. I dated, I had boyfriends, I brought them around my family just to seem normal because I wasn't normal. And I can even remember, even as a child, not to jump around, but I would even pray and I would ask God to take this away from me, but he didn't. I'm thinking to myself that that was how God made me. And that's how I was supposed to stay because he didn't take it away. And even with that, my mom used to teach us how to pray. And she said, listen to your first thought. So my first thought was, I'm going downstairs. And downstairs in a little child's mind is hell. I would say, God, I don't want to go downstairs. That was my main prayer. And so in high school, I began to get in a relationship. And in that relationship, it was my first real interaction with a woman. And I thought that I had fallen in love. I knew that it was wrong in my heart. But then I began to justify it. But then I began to know it was wrong. So I'm wrestling. And I can understand why people can be what we run away from in church, which is, is kind of like bipolar. You're dealing with two different personalities. And I'm creating this person on the inside of me. And so now I'm entangled with two people. And so I'm still trying to be regular. I'm still trying to be normal. But I'm totally in love with the woman. Further on, graduating from high school, I walk into college. And so it gets worse instead of getting better. I ended up accepting a ring to the point where if it had not been for God, I believe I would be in Arizona married to a woman because I began to accept that this is my life. And so in my mind, I'm writing letters to my parents apologizing that my dad wouldn't be able to walk his baby girl down the aisle to a man. Apologizing that my mother would never be a grandmother because I was in love with a woman. There's no way I can reproduce from that relationship. And so from there, something happened. It was a shaking. I began to get more God conscious. I began to get more afraid of hell. I was terrified. I always, it felt like I was always in the cold because now that I'm in this place, I realized that I didn't have life. I was a walking dead woman. And so it began to pull me down even further and further. And so another woman stepped in the picture. And the thing about that lifestyle is that the deeper you go, the worse you get. It doesn't get better. It looks like it's fun. It looks like people are happy, but you honestly get worse. There's no true love in it. It's a road of heartbreak, disappointments, and ultimately suicide, but eternally damnation. And so... Being with this woman and being in college, my life is changing for the worse. I'm absolutely going crazy. I'm coming out to people thinking that I'm doing something good. I'm telling them I'm gay. I'm starting to get prideful about it and accept that this is me. But God didn't allow me to get too far. And then one day, I'm laying down, and I go back to Marvin's cell. 
he saw the best in me. And then I made a decision. I said, Lord, I need to get saved. I got to get saved because my life is falling in shambles. I want to kill myself. I'm living a double life. I'm sneaking people into my mother's house. I'm being disrespectful. I'm liking women. I'm torn. I got to get saved. I, I got to let this go. It was hard to let it go, but I'm like, I got to let this go. And God kept on, every time I asked, why is this happening? The only thing that will come in my mind was that prayer. That's the only thing that kept coming into my mind was I said I was tired. And so that Saturday, I stayed up all night because I was excited. I felt it. I was excited. I said, man, when they open up them church doors, I'm going down there. I was excited. I was so excited that I literally stayed up to about 6 o'clock. And without an alarm clock, I woke up at 8. I woke up like I had slept a full 8 hours. Something was happening to me. Something was coming. Something, it was a change. Something was happening. And so I get up. I asked my friend, I said, what time did church start? She said, 9 o'clock. She gave me the wrong time. So I went in right when the pastor was opening up the doors for the church. And I heard a little bit of the end of the message to the point where I can't even tell you what he preached about. All I knew was that when those doors opened, those doors were open for me. And so when I walked, when he opened up the doors and asked, does anyone want to be saved? And give their life to Jesus. All I know was that my body lifted up. And my body turned as if somebody was instructing me how to get up and how to turn. And my feet just moved. It moved. And it was a long walk because I sat at the side of the church. But my body, I just knew. And I got up and I walked around. And I made it to the front of the church. And I just broke down. And from there... My life has never been the same. Things have come at me. Things have tried to try me. But when I say that God delivers, he delivers. And it's not a fake deliverance. He completely took the desire and the taste out of my mouth to the point where he put in natural affection. And that's how I know that when you are in Christ, old things are passed away and all things become new. He had mercy on me in the midst of the club. While I'm sitting there, he didn't have to say anything. But now I know for sure that it's not his will that man perish, but that all men come to repentance. And there is absolutely nowhere that God will not reach you. If I know that he had mercy on me in the club with a drink in my hand and told me that this is not who I am, then I know for sure that anybody practicing that lifestyle can come out and not be afraid that they won't like the opposite sex. That was another thing that kept me locked in. I was afraid that because I didn't like men, that I wouldn't like men. But God put that natural affection back in me to the point where when I look at a woman, that's my sister and that's it. That's all. There's no desire. And so I know that you could be truly delivered from a lifestyle of lesbianism. You can be delivered from a lifestyle of homosexuality. You can be delivered from perversion. No matter what type it is, even if you're dealing with a heterosexual couple and you just can't stop having sex, you just can't stop looking at pornography, you just can't stop being what you think is you, you can stop because that's really not who you are.
And I know from experience that not only did he take me away from the lifestyle of being a lesbian, but he took me away and put his words in my mouth to preach the gospel. And that's how I know that there is purpose attached to anyone, no matter how far someone think that they are, no matter how deep. No matter where you're at, even if you're in prison, if the call is attached to your life, you got to surrender. Because there's a purpose and there's another vessel for you to pour into all for God's glory to know that he is good. And so this is a victory testimony that homosexuality does not have to be your identity. No matter what you're in, no matter how deep, God can take you away from it. There's no such thing as being gay and being holy. There is no such thing as that. There's no such thing as being gay, holy, but you're not practicing it. There's no such thing. That is deception. God will take you and really clean you and take it out of you because that's what he desires for you to be completely delivered with no residue. And so I know if he did it for me and if he did it for someone else, he can do it for anybody. And that is the truth of this reality is that God is a deliverer from whatever it is that you're caught into, no matter how tight, no matter how much you think is you. He will change you and give you purpose and put his word in you. And someone else can be blessed by what God has taken you from. prayer. Father, we just thank you for the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the privilege we have to declare it to sinners. We have no other hope in this world but him. Pray now you dismiss us, Lord, with your blessing and help us in our evangelism to, to be clear and precise and biblical. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.